going to begin with prayer and get us started here. Acts chapter 16. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for taking care of us and looking over us. And Lord, thank you for all you do for us every single day. I pray that you um, protect those who are in harm's way in any way. Watch over your people. And, and thank you for answering our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts 16. Acts 16. And we were on verse 35. Paul is in Philippi. And in Philippi, we had the story about Lydia, where Lydia came to the Lord. And she's a business person in Philippi and from Thyatira. And then some things happened in Philippi. And one of the latest things was the jail incident in which uh, they were arrested over a civil unrest that had happened when Paul uh, cast a python spirit out of a slave girl. And that caused them, uh, the owners of the slave girl, to lose revenue. And they started an uprising. And so they threw Paul and Silas into prison. And they were singing hymns in the middle of the night. They're shackled up in a stone cold prison. And there was an earthquake. And every but his shackles were loosed. And then they, um, the jailer thought, okay, I'm a goner. I'm just retelling the story, all right? He was going to kill himself because he knew the Romans would torture him for having allowed the prisoners to escape. But Paul intervened and said, no, we're all here. Don't harm yourself. We're here. We're not going anywhere. And remember... Um, they had been listening to them sing hymns, which would have been from the Psalms. And what happened was he said, what must I do to be saved? So I guess that's kind of up to where we were. And he said then, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And what happened then was we talked about his household also heard the word of God, also believed. They were baptized. And so Christianity has been planted in Philippi, both through Lydia and others who had believed who were at this prayer site when Paul first came into the city, and now through the Philippian jailer and those that were there, whether they be prisoners or people of his household, and so the gospel is beginning to spread in Philippi. And um, so now that was what happened overnight. And then now we pick up on Acts 16, 35, and 36. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, 
The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. All right, you can go. Now, we're going to see some more intrigue here because we're going to learn that Paul was a Roman citizen and that changed everything because then they had rights. If you were a Jew or not a Roman citizen, you could be beaten and punished without a trial. You could be mistreated. Nobody's going to do anything about it. But if you're a Roman citizen, then you had rights. You couldn't have been thrown in, beaten and thrown in jail like Paul and Silas were. And so that's going to create an interesting scenario that helps us as Luke's reader to understand more about that world they were in. And it also sets the stage. Luke likes to use previews in Luke Acts. So, and I've been showing you that as I've been teaching through Luke Acts. Sometimes we go all the way back to Luke 1 to see previews of salvation, to see people rejoicing in salvation, already in Luke 1. Here's a preview of what's going to transpire as we go forward in Acts, which is earlier um, there were conflicts with authorities, mostly Jewish authorities in Jerusalem and the temple and so on with Peter and then later Steve, Stephen is a martyr and so on. But now we're going to have Paul and Roman authorities. And later he's going to appeal to, to Caesar and Rome and that's going to cause the end of Acts to travel to Rome. So here we're going to see that set up. So at this point, they're saying, okay, let them go. Now, there had been a big earthquake. The people got loose. Philippian jailer comes to Christ. But as I may have mentioned last time, the people in that part of the world believed that earthquakes were caused by the gods. Right? And they believed generally that if an earthquake happened, the gods were angry. Now, the problem for the pagans is they had no valid prophets to tell them these things, so they had to guess what the gods were angry about. The gods were angry, but we're not sure why. Now, later in history, after the time of the apostles, they assumed the gods were angry at the Christians. Tertullian lamented that. Every time something go bad happens, they throw the Christians to the lion because the gods are angry because the Christians won't serve the pagan gods. But here they're not sure what the gods are angry about, but because these guys were released and got free due to the earthquake, they thought, oh boy, this isn't good for us, right? Uh, we're throwing in jail and the gods let them go or however they were thinking. So they're in a hurry to get these guys out of town. Nothing good's going to happen to us by having them here. So that's what's going on. So the magistrates sent the police. Now magistrates, strategos, uh, by the ESV translates that police, are rabducos, which were rod bearers. Now, I've been telling you about fasces. Fasces 
a bundle of rods. It's where I get where we get the word fa fascist. So the fascists would have rods to beat people into submission. That's where Mussolini is from Rome. That's where that came from. Well, the Romans had that millennia ago. And so the police were rod bearers. Now, let me show you the accuracy of the Bible here. And if you want to look at this, if you can see it from where you are, I'll read the uh, material that comes with this slide. I purchased a whole bunch of slides that have to do with Acts. But it says, the lictor, Rebducos, was an office who served the magistrate and executed sentences on offenders. This coin from Rome depicts Council Junius Brutus, there's Brutus in Latin, walking between two lictors with axes. And so they had the bundle of sticks also contained an axe. So they could beat you, and then if they got wanted to, they could lop off your head too. They were it was really fun living in those days, right? Not not, not really. <clears throat> the image comes from Yale University, it's public domain. So here are the bundles of rods that these people were carrying that were gonna and then an axe in with the bundle of rods. And so there was the authorities. That's what they saw as they went through the city. So here they come. But they come to tell them to let them go. So they'd already been beaten with rods, wrongly. Now, ironically, the rod bearers come to let them go. Now, let me quote another source from a Greek lexicon on this word. A rod holder, an officer or type of sergeant who attended to the magistrates of Roman cities and colonies and executed their decrees. It said that they carried on their shoulders what they called the Roman fascis. Where's that word fascism? Bundle of rods with an axe in the middle as the ensigns and the instruments of their office. They administered punishment by scourging or beheading. So uh, they accused Paul and Silas, but it turns out that they didn't realize they were Roman citizens, and now they're going to be a problem when they find that out. Dr. Tannehill says the narrator, that's Luke, reserves the disclosure of Paul's and Silas's Roman citizenship for this setting, uh, which we'll see in a moment. It serves not as um, protection, but as a basis for accusing the magistrates as proof that Paul and Silas belonged to Roman society. In other words, you beat us wrongly. Now, one of the things I want to point out, and I keep saying this, but I want to insulate us against false accusations that the Bible is mythological. The Bible is cold, sober history. And as the facts 
and the reality are uncovered through archaeological digs, facts like these ones, artifacts like this one, prove that Luke was a rock-solid, accurate historian who, with amazing accuracy, portrayed the real world he was living in. A couple hundred years ago, it was popular amongst liberals to deny the historicity of the Bible and claim that it's all mythology. But political events happened so that it became safe to do archaeology in Turkey and in this part of the world. And what was uncovered was facts that proved the Bible to be true. So nowadays, liberals aren't so much deniers of the accuracy of the Bible. They're pointing everybody to mysticism and Eastern religion. And they're saying, oh, the spirits are real. It's all real, but you need to go to Buddha. It's the new version. Liberalism is now Eastern religion. But Christianity is based on God intervening in real history supernaturally and sending his apostles and prophets sending his son Jesus who died for sins once for all and giving us an account of what really happened and there's no reason to be a skeptic these things really happened okay so now having been beaten with rods wrongly the rod bearers ironically come to release them we beat you, but okay, that's on us, bye. So there's the rod bearers. Here's the next verse, Acts 16:37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and... Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. I love this. A lot of people are asking now, since we live in such a wicked, pagan society, it's getting more so all the time, what is the Christian's role vis-a-vis -vis the civil authorities? Well, we know from Romans 13 that God ordained civil authorities and that we need to pray for civil authorities. But we also find out from Acts here that if the civil authorities grant us certain rights and responsibilities, there's within our Christian liberty to uh, take advantage of those rights. Paul had a right to appeal, and he had a right to not be beaten without a trial. And so he called on that. And so I would take from that that, it's, that we have a right to appeal. Whatever rights are granted to us, it's right and proper for Christians to access those and to remind the civil authorities of what their laws are and what they've said and because they want to forget that and then just take uh, autonomous power and use it abusively. Well, we certainly see a lot of that being debated now. So Paul uh, 
stated his rights as a Roman citizen. Now, they lived in an honor-shame society, both a Jewish one and then the bigger Roman society, Greek world. And so to be publicly beaten, uncondemned, would have created shame. And in their world, shame was something that you wanted to avoid at all costs. And so having been publicly shamed was in a very serious evil. And so that's why he says publicly, publicly. Um, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. Paul talks about this event late in one of his epistles. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. Paul says this, quote, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Unquote. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. So despite being shamefully treated, he still had the boldness to proclaim the gospel. And that's exactly what we must do. We must have boldness to proclaim the gospel. Now, we don't know the future. We don't know the future of our own country. Um, and I've uh, decided I'm really working on this. I am out of the business of predicting the future other than what the Bible says. And I'm not necessarily claiming that as noble. It's more me not liking to be wrong. Okay? I've been wrong. Most of the times I've said things publicly that turned out to be wrong is when I predicted the future. Because it goes different than you think. Because it's part of providence. And God's provident, future providential will, as he governs his own universe, is unknown other than what he tells us will happen. Like the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the millennium, the rise of Antichrist, and so on. We know those things will happen, but we're still right now under providence. So I've thought things were going to get worse, and then they got better, and I thought they were going to get better, and then they got worse. <laughs> and I, I mean, I remember a bold prediction. I just thought about this one. These phones. Okay? When they came out and everybody carried them, I said, that's the end of, and I named one of our political parties. That'll be the end of that party, I told my wife. Why? Because now everything will get caught on video and all their evil and wickedness will be exposed for everybody to see and that'll be the end of it. And I was wrong. Why was I wrong? Because I didn't account for the fact that our citizens would love evil so much they don't care. And so all this evil is being exposed and shown to the whole world and they go, oh, I'm proud of my son. Oh, 
you know who I'm talking about. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I, MacArthur was talking about that. Uh, um, Bill Clinton, you know, when he was found to have all those affairs and all, his um, popularity went up. His, what do they call those? His numbers yeah. went up. Right. I mean, they skyrocketed. It only matters if people care about good and evil. Yeah, and, and MacArthur said, finally, we got somebody just like us who just lives like us, who sins and does all these things, and so they feel justified yeah. because the president does it too. Well, the point is, I, that's why I don't predict the future. It's embarrassing to be wrong. Okay? So I don't know what's going to happen. There could be, it could get way better. It could be a big revival. People could start caring about good and evil. Or it could get way worse. A lot of things could happen. I don't know what's going to happen. So don't, if you catch me predicting the future, I don't care what it is, come and tell me, Bob, you said you weren't going to do that. Well, bring out those bundles. Yeah, bring out the fascies. <laughs> don't do that. So we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. But we can know the difference between good and evil. The Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And Paul actually addressed that, too. He, he used the citizenship privileges he had right here. But he also called evil evil. They have beaten us publicly uncondemned. That's evil. You stated it. So you have the privilege and right to state what's good and what's evil. And you can appeal to your uh, rights that are given. Now, as you, can, as you know, we live in an era where the government officials don't care what your rights are. They're going to do whatever they want because they love having power. Out come the bundle of sticks. Whack, 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 whack. Get back in line. Well, but we got to preach Christ. Just keep preaching Christ. Don't let that, nothing stop us. Preach Christ. Because there's the power of getting out of that wicked system. So, let them come and take us out. Roman citizens cannot be flogged and imprisoned without due process. Um, slaves and non-citizens didn't have those rights. Well, that was a bad system. That's just the way it was. So you, some people can get beaten, but not others. Dr. Schnabel says this. The fact that there is no legal process before the beating is a serious matter because he uh, and apparently Silas are Roman citizens. While slaves and non-Romans could be interrogated under torture, the law protected Roman citizens from flogging and imprisonment as measures of coercio. That's their Latin word. He was thrown into prison. The second part of his punishment with bleeding wounds secured in stocks in a maximum security cell, left in jail overnight without food, all without establishing the necessity of the imprisonment through a legal process. So one evil thing after another been done to Paul and Silas. The earthquake happens, the chains comes off, and it's like the Romans go, uh-oh, the gods have found us out. That's kind of how they thought. They really thought the earthquakes were caused by the gods. 
So we better get these guys out of here before something worse happens. Go. We don't, we don't want you. Paul said, no, you come and let us out. I like that. Now let's have a little more archaeology here. This here, again, Philippi has been excavated. The next place we go is Thessalonica because it's still a, a huge thriving city. Most of the archaeology in Thessalonica is underneath public buildings. Can't be ex excavated. Philippi has more area where they can, the archaeologists can go and dig. So here we have um, the area right here in Philippi where they would have done a beating. Let me quote the, what I have here about this slide. Paul refers back to the events of the previous day when he and Silas were publicly beaten. That may have happened before the bema shown here, which would be a raised judgment seat, or elsewhere in the area of the forum, which is this bigger area. This was not something that Paul and Silas underwent on this occasion as the electors came to the prison. They came to get him out. It happened before. All right, so there's that. Again, showing real places, real situations that happened in cold, sober history. No mythology here. So, Acts 16, 18, 35. The policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates. Okay, so they go up the ladder. Uh-oh, here's what happened. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Okay? So they had a system of government that goes up the ladder. Now, the local officials in the Roman system, Philippi was a colony with a lot of civic pride. You learn that when you study the book of Philippians. A lot of military veterans lived in Philippi. They had huge pride in their Roman citizenship. That's why you read in Philippians, our citizenship's in heaven, because citizenship was something that they talked about a lot in Philippi. And so the Philippian magistrates and civil authorities wanted to keep Philippi in good standing with the larger Roman government. And if the people in charge of everything finds out the people in Philippi take their fasces and they beat citizens without even giving them a trial, they're in big trouble with Rome. A lot of really bad stuff could come down the pike uh, for what they did. That's why they're afraid. They're not afraid of Paul. They're afraid of what Rome would do to them for mishandling their civic responsibilities. That was a good thing. You know, it wouldn't be good if our authorities cared about what was right and what was legal. But it would be good. It would be to our benefit. But they did here, so they begged him to leave. Now the preachers have the upper hand, and the Romans want to avoid any future conflicts. 
So they're begging them. Let me quote Dr. Schnabel on this. They came to the city jail, met Paul and Silas. They placated, and uh, that's his translation of a Greek word, they placated them. They thought to assuage what they assumed were very angry Roman citizens who they had treated badly indeed. They escorted them from the prison. Finally, the magistrates asked them to leave. The imperfect of the last verb carries emphasis, suggesting the possibility that Paul and Silas asserted a right to stay in the city, prompting the magistrates to beg them repeatedly to leave. They are keen to get rid of the true, true Jewish visitors, according to Dr. Schneebel, which we can read here from the text. And so the next place they're going to go is Thessalonica. But what they were worried about here was that that would be the provincial capital, and they'd go there and lodge a complaint against the people, the, the rulers in Philippi. They'd go up the ladder. But Paul's more interested in where he's going to preach the gospel. So I, I see a little interesting slice of life in the first century in the Roman Empire. But God had brought the gospel uh, to the Jews and Gentiles in Philippi through his providence and interaction in real history. Now back to Lydia. We talked about her some weeks ago when I was earlier in Acts 16. Lydia was one of those at the prayer meeting by the river. We don't know of an actual synagogue in Philippi. There may not have been a very large Jewish population. But Paul found some uh, ladies gathered for prayer and there he preached, and Lydia was one of the early converts. We had learned that she was a seller of purple and was from Thyatira. And I gave you evidence back then that this is all true to historical reality. They were known for purple in Thyatira. There were different ways of creating purple, some from plants, but most um, desirable and valuable was the purple from a little shellfish. A purple duck. What's that? They were Vikings fans. <laughs> My, oh, they were Viking fans. I didn't know. They wanted purple. So anyhow, Lydia is a key person, though not a ton is said about her. The, the whole section is bracketed by Lydia at the beginning and Lydia at the end. And one of the points I made, and I want to reemphasize it right now for you, it's very important. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We don't know who God's going to use in some particular thing. We know he'll use all of us. But God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And she responded in faith. 
and becomes a key person in the Bible itself. Imagine that here in Acts 16 and a key person in the beginning of a congregation that would be there in Philippi. Lydia was previously mentioned in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us, Luke said, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Now she reappears here at the end as they're about to leave. But that's Luke's way of making that important, by bracketing it. In between, we had a lot of things happen, including the slave girl with the python spirit, the imprisonment, the beating, and so on, and the interaction with civil authorities. Um, I firmly believe this. We don't know what God's going to do, but God uses each of us, and we shouldn't look at things the way people typically do. We tend to think that the high-profile preacher, the TV preacher, the, the one who makes a big splash, the one who sells the most books, the one everybody wants to see or hear, that's how God's at work. And I'm not saying God can't work through somebody who's well-known, because we know he can but the work of, of God is happening in various places through ordinary people who come to faith and through whom God does extraordinary things, including you and I. God will use us. We need to be faithful in the arena God puts us and not take it as an insignificant thing. If somebody would have found Lydia by the river with some people at a prayer meeting, she wouldn't have thought, well, I'm going to be important. She wouldn't even think about that. But God opened her heart, and she was so excited to hear the gospel and to be part of the gospel. And that's what it's all about. Over my 45 years of plus of ministry, boy, there's a lot of people I've met in a lot of places. I can't remember her all. But a lot of key people who really love Christ and who want to be helpful to the gospel. And that's very, very important. Now let's look at some more. I bought this disc with all these pictures. I got to at least use it. Here's something I found, I found interesting because we're renting what's now a synagogue here. And up in the, in the sanctuary, there's this big thing Remember when we had it, we had a cross and the group I was with 10 years ago had this place and by God's providence we're back in it again as renters. But up at the front there is this structure that we see. Okay? Well, in a synagogue that would be where they would have a place for the Torah scroll that would be the focus. Everything's about Torah. So, um, let me cite what it says with this slide. If Paul and his companions shared a meal with Lydia and her household 
it seems reasonable to suppose, there was a high likelihood they gathered around a triclinium like this. The participants would recline with benches to be served. And there's your triclinium. Remember Jesus at the Last Supper? So here we are as a triclinium. I think I got ahead of myself here. Let me go to that. There it is. Similar looking slide. This right here, you see that? This is Thessaloniki. I got ahead of myself. That other one was a triclinium. Now, this is a later synagogue, but it kind of shows you how they did things. It says here, the Amel Quantitir Synagogue dates mainly to the 5th to 8th century AD, being destroyed by an earthquake in AD 749. It has since been reconstructed by archaeologists. The synagogue provides a good idea of the size and layout of a synagogue. The structure with steps visible here at the far end of the building is the Torah shrine or bima. So there's a Torah shrine that would be right in the middle of everything. That's what's upstairs for us up here is a Torah shrine. If I, somebody knows better, they can tell me, but I assume that's what we're dealing with, Torah shrine. Well, we bought this. Yes, go ahead up. There's the mic. Bima would be a raised platform where you'd put something. Okay. Uh, remember the Bima judgment seat? It's something raised. Central. Um, would, would that have the connotation then like that the our judgment is based on the word of God? I don't know if they're what they're trying that. to say, they're trying to give a high view of Torah. Yeah. When we bought this building, we meaning the group I was with, we bought this building as a really old synagogue, and we bought it in 2006. The upstairs, some of you may remember, was just 1964. Oh, yeah, you probably know some. Go ahead. In Temple Israel, which is the largest uh, reformed uh, temple in the country, I think possibly in the world. They always called that the uh, Ark. Why would they call the uh, Torah shrine the Ark? Isn't uh, there just one Ark for the whole world? Well, that would, the Ark would be reminding them of the Ark of the Covenant. And Torah would certainly be the document of the covenant. Interesting. Well, you will see, when we bought this, Ed, it was really run down. It was 2006. Upstairs, they only used for the high holy days. And it was old theater, theater seats with springs that would kind of go this way and that way. It was basically unusable. And so we gutted it and rebuilt it. But the actual synagogue part was right here. It was, it was just like right through there where the synagogue met and the rabbi when we were in the middle of the process asked me to be at one of their Shabbat services so I came because I was interested in seeing what they did and at the service it was the, the scroll was like a religious object of great reverence 
and importance to them. The, old, the older, better scroll you had, the better, as far as they were concerned. And they also honored the elderly, which is interesting. When we signed the final papers to buy the place, they brought their oldest member in order to show us honor. So America doesn't, isn't like that. We honor the young, and we try to joke with people, oh, you're so old, and then that's a bad thing. But in their world, old is good. A few of us are going, wow, that would be nice. Anyhow, I was here at the service, and they brought out the Torah scroll. It's not a very efficient way to find a certain passage. And so they had one of their older per persons come forward in Hebrew, and they said, here's the passage. And it was something from somewhere in Tanakh. And so they, they're up there spinning the scroll. Have you seen that, Ed? Yeah. They're spinning the scroll. You go, zoom, 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 zoom. And the guy would look more. He'd look, no. Look, there we go, getting close. And then the guy would read in Hebrew when they got to the spot. And then they'd take the scroll and walk around the entire congregation so people could touch it. Or, and so the scroll was like a religious uh, artifact that was highly valued. And uh, the rabbi was a wonderful guy, and we had a, 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 I had an interesting time being in their service. Go ahead. Uh, the, the Torah and then the Torah reading on the Sabbath each Saturday is so highly regarded that that is why when the uh, Jewish boy turns 13 and gets bar mitzvahed, his whole preparation for that is for him to be able to read the Torah section that has been designated for that specific Sabbath, which obviously changes throughout the year. And uh, when they open up that Torah that you see up on the bima, there's no vowels or anything in it. When you open up, they probably have them around they here. The, for they the, the yeah, they'll have the pronunciation and the vowels there. That's what the, the, the young Jewish boy will, will study. But it's, it's almost like you really have to memorize that because when you see just those letters with no vowels, uh, you don't want to embarrass yourself. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, Ed and Brian are Jewish and uh, came to Messiah. So you know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. So that's kind of what happened. It was interesting. But I, I also see applications of the time of Jesus, what you were just mentioning. In when Jesus in Luke Acts came into Nazareth to the synagogue, he was handed a scroll. Some scholars think the doubt also was a miracle because they go to the portion to be read that Shabbat. It's about him. So he read the Torah portion. This is in Luke 4, I think around verse 18, verse 16, 17, 18. You can look it up. And he was reading, I think, from Isaiah 61. And 
when he sat down, when, when they were done with that reading, he said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So the people in Nazareth have been going to synagogue. And every Shabbat, a section, here's the section. So I saw them do that. Here it is. The, old, the oldest person would read it, at least in this case. And uh, that's how they did it, to honor the elderly. And so people have been going to the Torah service, the services and seeing that their whole lives. So one particular Shabbat, someone new came in, Yeshua, and it was it, it came to the portion to be read, and they must have honored him as a traveling teacher, and he reads it, and that particular day, the very one prophesied about in Isaiah was there reading it. Unbelievable, the greatest honor any synagogue could ever have. Jesus read the Torah section, and it was about him. And then he preached. Very, very key section in Luke X. But guess what happens? They begin to debate him, and at the end, they took him to throw him off a cliff and kill him. They had gotten the greatest honor ever to have Messiah read the Torah section, and in the end, they wanted him dead. This is a preview in Luke 4 of what's going to happen when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to be rejected. In Luke X, Luke 9, 51, all the way to the triumphal entry and then his rejection, is a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected by Jerusalem in a horrible tragedy, but yet at the same time, fulfillment of prophecy. And there's a certain tragedy to this very day. Honoring the Torah scroll is one thing, but believing what it says is yet another. And Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you like a hen would gather chicks, but you would not have it. These things have been hidden from your eyes in order that, of course, the gospel will go out to Jews and Gentiles. So what do we learn from, from this? It is good that God has spoken in Scripture. But the Bible is not a religious object to be venerated as an object. What makes the Scripture powerful, like a two-edged sword, is what it actually says. And those who do not believe, the Word does not profit them. If you don't believe what it says, it won't profit you. You could have the best, most ancient Torah scroll anybody ever owned. It's worthless if you don't believe in the Messiah to whom it points. That's what we learn in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And so you can buy a nice MacArthur Study Bible, 
It's a good idea. But it won't help you if you don't believe it. All right. So back. I got ahead of myself because I thought that little that little spot was it, but that was just the triclinium. Now they travel. Acts 17, 1. Acts 17, 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. The synagogue is important in Luke-Acts. And I think one of the most important synagogue scenes is the one I already mentioned in Luke 4 when Jesus comes into the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth. Oh, it's one of our boys. He's back in town. Let's have him read Torah. Then they want to kill him. Very interesting. Luke... If you just, you got to read Luke-Acts as the two-volume work that it is. Luke is setting up synagogue in Luke 4, but it becomes important in the book of Acts. Synagogue after synagogue. When the gospel comes to the synagogue, it creates a crisis. The crisis is going to be, will you believe the truth of all the things that you've been hearing your whole life, now fulfilled in the person of Christ, or are you going to cling to your traditions and throw the gospel preachers out of town? How will you respond when the hope of Israel shows up either in the flesh during the gospels or in the person of his Apostles that he sent in the book of Acts. So this was a journey of 106 miles. I assume you know they didn't have cars or airplanes. So they could get that far in three days, but it was harrowing. And Rome had a good system of transportation and civil law, so it made it possible for the gospel to spread in God's Providence. <clears throat> and so we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Let me give you some details about this. Uh, why do that? Who cares about details? Well, I don't want anybody to ever have heard me teach and go away thinking that the Bible's not reliable. I want everybody to know it's cold, sober truth. It's absolutely true in all that it asserts. Dr. Schnabel, Thessalonica was situated at the northeastern end of the Thermaic Gulf at the foot of the Cartiatus Mountains, Mount Kisos. The city was founded by the Macedonian king, Cassandras, in 315 B.C., combining the old city of Theme with two dozen other settlements, he named the new city in honor of his wife, Thessalonike, a half-sister of Alexander the Great. The city was situated at the junction of the roads from Asia Minor 
to the Adriatic Sea, from the Balkans to the Axios Valley to the Danube region. Thessalonica soon eclipsed the old Macedonian capital Pella, two days' journey to the northwest. When the senatorial province of Macedonia was established, 148 BC, Thessalonica was granted autonomous self-rule and became the provincial capital. And by the way, there are two types of provinces, imperial, which are directly under Rome, and senatorial that was under the Roman Senate. They had a very system, different and uh, efficient system of government. I won't give you any more of this, but it was a key city. Now these key cities, as we saw earlier in Acts, are places that are at the crossroads. So as people come through, they hear the gospel, things go out. Because the Great Commission in Luke 24 and Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was that the gospel would be preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the gospel is spreading out. Now this is happening because of the power of God through the word of God when it's preached truly and correctly according to the, what God has said. Preach Christ. Preach the truth. It's still true today. It's more confused today because we have Christendom, which is not part of the Great Commission to create a Christendom, and we have edifices that are supposedly Christian, and we've got all kinds of things that are supposed to be Christian, much of which has no gospel. Some do. Some have it when they do something, they go through a liturgy and they say something. But if you ask the preacher, they don't believe it. I've told my story many times. I grew up in theological liberalism. Three different ordained ministers told me there were no miracles and Christianity is a helping religion to help people be better people. But it was based on myth. It didn't really happen. That's what I was told. So I left. I left Christianity. I left the church because I didn't really have anything anyhow. And I was converted at age 20 through the witness of Christians. And let me just say this and by way of application here. Christendom, creedalism, for better or for worse, I'm going to write an article. I don't believe in creedalism. And I'm going to refute a guy who, who does and show that his categories are not biblical categories. I believe in Scripture alone and the priesthood of every believer. And I believe that even today, with all of church history and world history and so-called Christian nations and Rome and the Pope and all of these headquarters here and there, Okay, that's all out there. But in some ways, nothing's changed. The gospel came to me not through the creed I recited every Sunday because they made me do it because the pastor told me privately he didn't believe it himself. Faith that comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. 
better to preach it than say, repeat after me, blah, blah, blah. All right, let me out of here. Where's the golf course? All right, but today, dear saints, today, there are still Barnabas people and Lydia people and someone somewhere in a city who hears by a river and believes there are still the Philippian jailers today. There are still persons here and persons there who believe and they're born of God and they have a hunger for the truth. They have a hunger for Christ. They want to be part of this. And what's confusing is church history and Christendom. But let's just not let that confuse us for now. And say, well, whatever the merits of all of that, the gospel is still the same gospel. And a few people gathering in a home in the name of Christ are still the church gathered. And the power of God's word is still the same. Be encouraged. God will use you. And God will use the people you know. And I don't worry about how many people or how big the building. That's all part of Christian liberty. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. Meet here, meet there. That that's not what matters. What matters is the gathered flock that believes the word of God. And we... Um, when the Reformation happened, the first way they defined the church, Luther and Calvin, was that wherever the word is purely taught, and the sacraments, which I would call ordinances, are practiced according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there the church exists. So it might be here, someplace like this. this is, they're not claiming this was Lydia's house. But it's an excavation that would be something similar. There was enough, it was, she was wealthy. Christianity isn't just for the poor or just for the rich or just for anybody. It's for whoever believes, Jew or Gentile. Lydia happened to be wealthy. So she had her place where they would gather and they would lean. They would lean. They didn't have chairs. And they would be served in the triclinium. It may be like that. But it's the church, the church of Philippi. When Paul wrote the letter to Philippi, they didn't have some big cathedral. Christians didn't have cathedral until after Constantine. Then he went and built them all over the place for his relatives. Okay, the church might exist in a cathedral. It seems the least likely place, but you never know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So, yeah, or a library. We met in a library. We met in a senior center. We met in a school gym, no, a school auditorium. So the travel is going to be that. I'll show you that next time. Real places, Philippi, Apollonia, Apollonia. Here's the bigger picture. Here's play real. There's Thessalonica and so on. So that's how it goes. Uh, be encouraged. Let's let's uh, close in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you use ordinary people with your mighty power.
to change lives, that we might know you and serve you. Pray for Eric as he preaches to us, that you would give him boldness, preach the truth of the word, and may we open our hearts to the things that are taught from your word, that we may be growing and be used by you. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.